This morning's passage comes from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. You could find it in the bulletin. You could also follow along in your own Bibles. If you're able, if you would stand as I read aloud from God's Word. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. Time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. It's a time to seek, a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war in a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Would you please be seated and would you join me once more in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we ask this morning that you would guide our conversation, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that you would give us ears to hear, that your spirit would work within us, that your word would have its effect, and that we would be drawn to you, we would see your beauty. We would stand in awe and amazement of you, and we would worship you as our God. We thank you for your love for us, that you have power over all things, but with that power you have loved us unconditionally through your Son, Christ Jesus. And so we ask this morning that we would sense more of your power, more of your goodness and your justice, and more of your love. We thank you. We praise you this morning. It's in your name we ask all of these things. Amen. Well, in case you haven't, four- and five-year-old children, if you would like, you can leave for Children's Church at this time, and let's then look together at this passage. Let me say this morning, as we begin looking at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that I believe the purpose for preaching, any given Sunday, the purpose for preaching is, I think, very simple. Purpose for preaching is that the preacher is to unfold the Word of God that we would have a greater knowledge of Him in our minds and a deeper affection for Him in our hearts. Preaching, the purpose is the unfolding of the Scriptures, that we would have a greater understanding of Him in our heads, in our minds, and a deeper affection for Him in our hearts. John Piper put it a slightly different way, but I think he gave a very uh, beautiful illustration in talking about preaching. He said that 
the preacher spends every week in the gold mine of God's Word. And he's mining away, digging away, and dusting off the Word of God. And every Sunday then is the preacher emerging from the gold mine and holding up a beautiful nugget for the congregation to look at. And the congregation can say, ooh, wow, isn't that amazing? The, the Word of God, how beautiful that is. Okay? That's, that's the job, uh, the role of the preacher every Sunday to present the Word of God to you. That you may understand with your minds and have a deeper affection for Him in your hearts. Okay? Let me say that sometimes there are passages that are really hard to do that with. The last four weeks, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and chapter 2 were really hard. We can explain those chapters, but to see how that connects to the affections of our hearts is another thing to do. It's a very challenging endeavor in chapters 1 and chapter 2. This morning as we look at chapter 3, it's actually a very easy job, okay? If we get done this morning and your heart isn't at least very little move towards God and your affections towards Him, when we look at this passage, then I haven't done my job well because this is a very easy passage to see how this draws us to the living God as we understand the truth of His Word. You see, this morning as we look at chapter 3, chapter 3 is a very different chapter from the first two chapters of this book. It's a very different chapter from the rest of this book. As we have been looking at Ecclesiastes, we get to chapter 3 this morning, and we are going to take a hard right-hand turn. It's a very sharp distinction from the first two chapters. We are going to see something very different in chapter 3 that we haven't yet seen in the first two chapters. The call this morning is that as we look at the very same events and the very same circumstances of life, we see a very different perspective concerning those circumstances. This, in comparison to chapters 1 and 2, if that was the perspective of man, this is the heavenly perspective, okay? This is the godly perspective. This is the perspective with truthfulness. This is how things actually are in chapter 3. Now, we, we see that there's a distinction, and it's made very clear from the very beginning of this chapter. Uh, chapter 3 begins uh, with a statement about there being, uh, for everything, there is a season. And if you'll notice there, there is a different distinction following those words. We had the two common phrases that appear in all of this book, vanity of vanity, all is vanities, and the phrase, Uh, that there is nothing new under the sun. You remember that? Those phrases repeated some 25 times and 32 times in this book, okay? But this passage doesn't begin with the phrase concerning things under the sun. It says, for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, okay? So if you look at the outline on the insert in your bulletin, we've made the distinction this morning. Uh, There is things under the sun... And this morning, there is things under heaven. Now, I would suggest to you this morning, as we begin looking at this passage, that that is no simple slip of the tongue, okay? It's not a slip of the pen. Solomon didn't make a statement and then realize, oh, I I meant to say under the sun, not under heaven. It's a very intentional distinction being made in chapter 3, where Solomon sets a new course to begin to explain the circumstances of life, and he makes now this distinction, we're not dealing with things under the sun, that is the code for according to man's perspective, rather we're going to deal with things according to God, that is things under heaven. 
And so this morning, we're going to make a distinction. Now, if, if over the last few weeks you've been thinking, I'm getting tired of those pictures that he's drawing on the board, we're not drawing pictures this morning. My disfigured stick figures, we're, we're going to draw no pictures this morning, but rather we're going to make for ourselves a chart whereby we will compare the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes with chapter 3. I think you will see there's something very different going on in chapter 3. By the end of the morning, we will make for ourselves a conclusion, and the conclusion is very simple. How does all of this impact my life, okay? If we're to see from a different perspective under heaven, according to God, the way that things actually are, then how does that impact the way that I live my life now today, okay? So a number of distinctions. The first one we see is that according to man, life seems random, but according to God in this chapter, there's a very intentional method to all of life. It's very intentional. Now, you'll remember in the first two chapters that one of the things that Solomon was wrestling over was that all of life seemed to be very random, okay? He said this over and over again. In the first chapter, he he wrestled with subjects like wisdom. He said, uh, there is a wise man and a fool, but it seems that both things happen to the same people, uh, to different people. That the wise man ends up in the very same place that the fool ended up. We got to chapter 2 and he began to speak about his work. And he said, I labored with my hand. I, I committed myself to this work and I built these things for myself. But it seems that the, the man who works gives it to another who didn't work. The thing that Solomon wrestles over in in those two chapters, among other things, is this seeming randomness, that random things happen to random people at random times for random reasons, and it all appeared to be very random to him, okay? Something very different he begins to speak about in chapter 3, and we see it at the outset of the chapter in verse 1 when he says, for everything there is a season. For everything there's a season, and this word season is not the, the normal word for a, a period of time, okay? That's, that's another word that appears in this chapter over and over again. There's a, there's a time for this and a time for that. It's not even the word that's often used to, to distinguish a season of the year, okay? Rather, it is a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is the word zemant. In case you're interested, zemant. It is a word that means a a very specific period of time, a period of time that has a beginning and an end, a time that has been set off for a specific purpose. It's the word that you might use if you're a parent and you say to your child, okay, you've got 30 minutes to watch the TV or 30 minutes to play the video game. Your 30 minutes begins now at 9 a.m. and it ends at 9.30 p.m. It has been ordered ahead of time. It has been established The beginning has been differentiated from the end. It has been well-ordered, and it has been delivered to you. Now, you can probably pick up on the fact then that this word would be often used in Scripture to differentiate the time that is ordered or ordained from heaven and given to man, okay? This is a word that often distinguishes a divine period of time, that God has made a beginning from an end. He has... Uh, ordered time in a very specific manner. You see, as Solomon begins chapter 3, he's not saying that life is random and these events happen at random occurrences and random times and places. Rather, he begins by saying there is 
a perfectly ordered season for everything. There is a perfectly ordered season for being born. There is a perfectly ordered season for dying. There is a pre-ordered time for building up. There is a pre-ordered time for tearing down. And all of that has its beginning and it has its end and it has been ordained by God and it has been given to man and it is from a very intentional God ordering all of life for us. That's what Solomon means when he says for everything there is a season. It has all been ordered. The second distinction is very similar to the first distinction. In the first two chapters it seemed like everything was in chaos. Okay? But we see in this chapter, chapter 3, rather Solomon would say to us that everything has order, it has meaning, it has purpose. Now, I, I think that you can observe this, even if you didn't read a word of this chapter, you can look at chapter 3 and you can see there's something different about chapter 3, can't you? You see these words are set apart in a very poetic way. That there is a rhyme and a rhythm in chapter 3. That everything has its place. That it moves from, from one idea to the next in a very clean and orderly way. Chapter 3 appears to be very different than the first two chapters, doesn't it? In chapters 1 and 2, as we were reading, it, it felt like everything was in chaos. Okay? Solomon would put forward an idea and then he would move on and he would return to the idea. Then he would come up with a very new idea. And as we were moving through chapters 1 and chapters 2, you might have been thinking, well, Solomon really doesn't know how to write very well, does he? Okay? It seems as if these ideas haven't been fleshed out. He moves from one to the other without a cogent sense of thought. I tell you the truth, many people have argued that this book of Ecclesiastes is not written by Solomon because of the way he writes those first two chapters. How disorderly they feel, and we know that Solomon wasn't a disorderly person, okay? I think he writes the first two chapters in that way, preparing us for the third chapter, okay? He writes in a disorderly, chaotic way to tell us that things under the sun, according to the mind of man, are disorderly and chaotic, that we would be prepared for the order of chapter 3, that under heaven, according to God and the truth of the matter, all things have their place. That they are all orderly and intentional. Now, if you read this chapter, chapter 3, and you think, man, this is beautiful, listening to this poetry... Just imagine how beautiful this is in the Hebrew. I want to read you the first two verses, and I know you won't understand the words, but I want to encourage you to listen just to the language and how beautiful this is, and then consider whether indeed this was an intentional, uh, intentional differentiation by the author. Here's what the, e the Hebrew says. Et la ladet va'et la mut. Et la ta'at Va'et la ko'or natua. Et la harog va'et lirpo. Et lipros va'et libnoat. If you heard it, it, it for me it's a very, a, a very beautiful poetry. It has a rhyme and a rhythm. It is meant to communicate to us that there is an orderliness in all of creation from the hand of God. 
Now, as we move through some of our distinctions uh, about this passage this morning, let me ask you a question. Do you think that we live like this? If all of reality is intentional and orderly, as we're considering that this is, in fact, the reality that under heaven, according to God, all things are in their place, they are designed for a purpose for us, do we live like this? I think if you were to consider, you might say, yeah, I I pay head knowledge. I I definitely believe that. But I would imagine that for most of our lives and most of our everyday, we often ascribe a sense of chaos or a disorderliness to all of creation that we think when bad things happen to us, well, this must just be my bad luck. This must just be something that happened and there's no explanation for it and I just kind of got to keep trudging through the disorderliness of life. I believe if, if we were to live like this and to ascribe to everything a meaning and a purpose, even if we can't at that moment get our hands around it, I believe that we would live in a very different way in our everyday lives, okay? I believe it would mold and form our minds that we would ascribe meaning to everything, everything that comes to pass. And though it may still be painful, it would not be nearly as confusing for us. It would have purpose, and meaning. That's the third observation we can make about this passage. Uh, in the first two chapters, there was a sense of meaninglessness. In this chapter, everything seems to be meaningful. Now, as I said, first two chapters, you think of all the different uh, uh, circumstances that were described in the first two chapters. We had a wrestling over work and over toil and over knowledge and over wisdom. There was mentions of death and decay and suffering. We saw the conversation over pleasure and the things of this world and whether pleasure is good or bad. All of these things are wrestled over in the first two chapters. And you know what? They're mentioned again in the third chapter. Okay? It's not as if we get to the third chapter and Solomon says, Oh, those things, they're not real. They don't exist. There's nothing to be wrestled over. You see, they're all brought up again in the third chapter because there's a time to be born, and yes, there's a time to die. There's a time to build up, but yes, there's a time to tear down. He says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. Both those things are mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter 2. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. Those also are mentioned in chapters 1 and chapter 2. But one of the very real distinctions in chapter 1 and 2 is there's a sense of meaninglessness. Okay, these things are mentioned and we're left kind of wondering, well, what's the meaning? And that's not there in chapters 1 and 2. Chapters 1 and 2, we have to go elsewhere in Scripture to try to find our answers. But in chapter 3, as he mentions those very same things, we see that there's a meaningfulness. There's a purpose. Let me give you one example of that in verse 9. Verse 9 says this, What gain has the worker from his toil? They've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. Now, are, there, are those words familiar to you? If they're not, if you got lost in chapters 1 and 2 and the busyness or the chaos of those first two chapters, those words are the exact same words that are appeared in chapters 1 and chapter 2. Okay? The, the, verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? That's lifted out of chapter 1, verse 3. He picked it up out of chapter 1, verse 3, and he plopped it down right here. Chapter 3. The second line of verse 10, I have seen the the, uh, busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. That is lifted out of chapter 1, verse 13, and chapter 2, that's repeated twice. He lifts it up out of those chapters and he plops it right down here in chapter 3, word for word verbatim. No difference, no difference at all. 
But you know what the distinction is? Chapters 1 and chapter 2 ask the same question. What gain is there in our toil? And in chapters 1 and 2, here's the answer that Solomon gave. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after the wind. So the question, what value is there in our work? Solomon says the answer is this. I have seen it. It's all empty. There's nothing. You strive after the wind. There's nothing to be gained. It's meaningless. Okay? And, and we, we're left in chapters 1 and 2 saying, uh, it's kind of awkward. Right? Uh, we've got to find our answers elsewhere. Chapter 3 is very different. He asks the question, then how does he answer the question in verse 11? What gain has the worker from his toil? Verse 11, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Well, that's a very different answer, isn't it? He has made everything beautiful in its time. You know the Hebrew concept of beauty? It is similar to the English, though it's even more intense. You know, in English, we would say beauty is more than just being pleasing to the eye. Beauty depicts a wholeness a fullness, a a comprehensiveness, okay? And that's the Hebrew, but again, it's even more intense. This word is often translated as fullness or comprehensive, uh, comprehensiveness. This word here means that it's all complete, that it's lacking nothing. And I want to give you a, a visual illustration I think will bring this to life. If you can envision yourself building your dream home, maybe you've built your dream home before, Okay, but envision you're building your dream home and you're doing it. You, you are doing it. You're building everything. And it's taking years. And if you can envision on the last hour of the last day of the last week of your work, putting on the final piece, okay? So you nail the piece of trim on the, that, the front door and everything is done and you take a step back and you look at it and you realize everything is perfectly in its place. And you say, that's beautiful. Okay? It's the same thing that God said at creation. He looked at creation. He said, this is good. It is beautiful. It has its place. Everything is right. That's what the word means in verse 11. So the question, what gain is there in our toil? What good is there in all of this? Solomon says he has made it all perfectly in its place in his time. You see what that means? You know, last week, we're wrestling over the question of our work, and we said, well, what value is there in our work? We, sometimes we toil, and we feel like there's, there's nothing gained from it. What that means is, with our work and with all that we do, we are working feeling as if there's no purpose in what we're doing, but God is the one who has the blueprint. And the house is being built, and one day we will stand with Him, and we will say, well, that's beautiful. Everything had its place. Everything perfectly put where it should be, having meaning and purpose, and man, that is good. That's what Solomon means here, okay? So we compare the world of man under the sun, it is meaningless, okay? But according to God, all the problems of chapter 1 and chapter 2 actually have their purpose. They have their place, and they're right where they should be. The fourth thing that we notice between these chapter 3 and chapters 1 through 2. In chapters 1 through 2, okay, there was confusion, but it was unexplained confusion. Okay? Unexplained confusion. In chapter 3, the confusion is explained. Now, this is not in chapter 3 that the confusion goes away. Okay, so we don't get to chapter 3 and Solomon says, 
boom, it all makes sense. There's no confusion. There it is. We all get it, okay? But rather, he, he deals with the confusion in chapter 3, and we find a place for the confusion of this world. And if you remember in chapters 1 and 2, there was a level of confusion because every step of the way, we confronted a hard subject, and we were, again, left with no answer. Solomon said, work is full of sorrow, vexation, and sleepless nights. And we got through that and we said, okay, what do we do with that? And it's unexplained confusion. It's very different in this chapter. Look at verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he put eternity into man's heart. Now, you remember that from last week, right? Last week we said, God made man, he gave him a heart, and he imprinted on his heart a desire for eternity, and we said that's why work doesn't make sense to us. The fruitfulness of work is fleeting. We lose it, but we want to work for, for uh, eternity. We want that the labor of our hands would have some lasting impact. That has been put into our hearts by God. And so verse 11 says, he has put eternity into man's heart. But what does it say after that? Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. You see what Solomon's saying there? Eternity in man's heart, but there's a problem. The problem is that man cannot discern what God has done from the beginning to the end. Okay? So let me tell you something. The reality of the confusion of this world is not that we have a real problem, it's that we have a perception problem. Okay? It is a problem of perception. The problem is not that God has not ordered things from beginning to end. That's not the problem. The problem is not that God has lost power or that he has lost goodness, or that he has lost some sort of oversight, or that sin has created a conundrum for God. It is not a real problem. It is a problem of perception. Yet that man cannot discern what God has done from the beginning to the end. There's a number of good analogies that I could give you at this point. I want to give you one. I think it's very helpful as I was thinking through this passage Many of you have done this. You've been driving down the highway and you've gotten stuck behind a big Mack truck, right? You've done that. Sometimes you have such bad providence, bad, not bad luck, bad providence, okay? Sometimes it doesn't go according to your plans. You get stuck behind two trucks, right? One on the right, one on the left, and there's no getting around them, okay? Getting stuck behind a big truck on a highway presents a perception problem, doesn't it? Whenever we're driving behind a big truck and we're stuck in traffic, uh, my wife or my kids usually say, what's going on up there? And I say, I don't know. I can see a truck. That's all I can see in front of me. I have no idea what's beyond the truck. I really can't tell you. Okay? It is a problem of perception. Beyond that truck, there could be any number of things. And as we're thinking about this passage, you also could be driving down the road thinking, I'm going to pull off at the next Chick-fil-A. And you get stuck behind that truck, and the, the sign comes and the sign goes. And you never, you never realize that you could get off and go to dinner, right? Okay? That's a problem of perception. It's not a, a, it's not a real problem. Whatever's beyond that truck hasn't changed, right? The reality that is beyond that truck is still that reality. There is still a Chick-fil-A at the next exit. There's still a traffic jam beyond that truck. The problem is a problem with perception. And that's what Solomon is saying here this morning, okay? God has indeed ordered all of life. The confusion we experience is because we got a bad vantage point, Okay? We're, we're struggling to see. We have very limited eyesight of what God is doing in this world 
But trust me, he is doing things, okay? And he's, he is working out his good plan in both the negative and the positive things that we experience every day of life, okay? That is explained confusion. The final thing we see in this passage is that verses 1 and 2 had a lot about man. Verse 3 has a lot about God. Did you notice that? Verse 1 mentions God one time. Did anybody find it strange? Go through a whole chapter in Ecclesiastes. Solomon mentions God one time, and the one time he mentions him in chapter 1, it's not a very good mention. It's like God has made man be busy with things, okay? Not, not a, a great explanation of things. Chapter 2, twice he mentions God. Again, it's not a very good mention of God. What about chapter 3? God's mentioned eight times in this chapter. You get through the poetry and you get to the bottom part and it's like God is all over this passage, okay? And he's explaining reality by explaining who God is and what God has done. Very different from chapters one and two because chapters one and two is man does this and man thinks this, okay? Those chapters, all about man's perspective. This chapter is all about God. Look at verse 14, probably one of my favorite verses in this chapter. Solomon says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. That's the beginning of wisdom, okay? That, that God has done it, and he has done it so that people might fear him. And the last verse there, everybody, everybody wrestles over the last verse. What does it mean? Commentators kind of disagree on the last verse, but I can tell you what I think it does mean, at the very least, okay? There are a number of things in this world that have been driven away. You might think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They were, they were driven out of the garden. But more than that, and we've seen it in the first two chapters, we have been driven from God. The creation has been driven from us. We have been driven from one another, okay? The effects of the fall have created a lot of driving away. And the reality of this passage is Solomon ends it by saying, God is going to seek that which has been driven away. Thank God that he has sought us out, okay? Us who were driven from him, separated by sin, Without hope in his sovereign mercy, thank God that he sought us out. So God seeks what is driven away. This is an explanation of chapter 3. Now let me ask you the question, okay? This is the conclusion. What should this mean for our life? How should this impact us? Well, let me, let me tell you something, okay? We are tempted to live like this. Life is random, full of chaos, meaninglessness. It's unexplained confusion, and it is man-centric. And you know what? We don't struggle with this when things are good. When things are good, we typically just don't ask questions, do we? Right? When things are good, we're just cruising along. We don't have anything to wrestle over. When we experience the trials of life, that's when we tend to go here. Solomon says, this is where we should be. This is the, the truthful, this is the reality, this is the honest explanation of life, okay? 
that, that a loving God has intentionally ordered all of life, that it is meaningful and our confusion is explained, and if it's ordered around Him, it all has purpose, meaning, hope, and goodness, okay? The reality is this. We can explain the trials of life one of two ways. If we explain it like this, we end up at a very empty place, okay? There is no meaning, there is no purpose, and I tell you, there's no hope in that. The alternative is this, and if this is true, as Solomon explains it in chapter 3, then that should change the way we live all of our lives. This should be one of the most assuring, confidence-boosting, spirit-raising, hope-endearing, strengthening things to our heart. If this is real, then all of life is ordered perfectly by our God for our good. Let me tell you, Corrie ten Boom, many of you know Corrie ten Boom, she survived the Holocaust as a Christian, and she uh, was involved in rescuing Jews from being killed or sent to concentration camps. She has an amazing testimony, and here's how she explains this. This is the providence of God. Here's how she explains it. When a train goes through a tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off the train. You sit still and you trust the engineer. Okay? It's a, it's a beautiful picture, right? The left side of this chart would have us say, the train is in chaos, there's no one driving it, and when we go through the tar- dark tunnel, you better jump off because this train's about to crash. And sometimes we live life like that. Okay? But the reality is that our God is driving the train. And he's heading to a specific place that he has ordained and ordered, and it is a good place. And it is good for us, and it brings him glory. The question then is, as we sit on the train, is do we trust him? Do we trust him? Do we trust that that we are going to a good place, that everything has been designed for our good? Do we trust him? Very simple question. This, I think, should be the ultimate comfort to the believer, not because our circumstances change. When you become a Christian, you don't stop dying or getting cancer or having strife in your life or experiencing pain and suffering or having broken relationships. That doesn't stop as a Christian. Our circumstances do not change in this world. We have comfort because all of the junk that we experience in this life has meaning and purpose that is being intentionally and specifically with great detail ordered by a powerful God. And you know what? Not only is he powerful, we can't forget this, he also loves us. If he was simply powerful, we could cower beneath him in fear, knowing that he's ordered all of life. But not only is he powerful, he loves us. And he has made us his children. And so if he loves us and he is powerful, then that should bring comfort to our hearts as his children. He loves us. Paul ends his letter to the Romans by saying this, what then shall we say to these things if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? My exhortation to you this morning is very simple. As children of God, let's recognize that he's powerful and he is ordered and ordained all the events of life, but let's also recognize that he loves us. If that is true, we should not have fear in this world. 
There will be pain and there will be suffering, but it all has a purpose. God has made it beautiful in its time, and it is good for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, but that you have sought us. We thank you that you seek out that which has been driven away. As Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, so we, we have been driven from you by our sin. But we thank you, Lord God, that you have sought us by your Spirit. And you have found us and you have convicted our hearts that in the deadness of our sins and trespasses, our heart of stone was taken and a heart of flesh was replaced and that with these new hearts, we might look to you in faith. We thank you, our Lord and our God, that as we have been loved by you, that as Christ Jesus has died for us and we have been made sons and daughters, we thank you that your plans are for our good. Help us, Lord God, to look at every circumstance of our lives from now to eternity. Help us to look at those circumstances and to say, Lord, they are good. And they are for us. And they are for your glory. Help us to be convinced that if we changed it, we would make it worse. Help us to trust you. Help us to love you. Help us to worship you out of the thanksgiving of our hearts. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen.